morning, K2. Uh, as Sally mentioned, my name is David York. I'm on the spiritual advisory board here, and I'm uh, really excited and, and grateful for the chance to come share this morning. Uh, for those of you who know me, it probably would come as no surprise to learn that I was not a good student growing up. Uh, in fact, I hated reading. Uh, to, to, to prove this to you, I think from like fourth grade through 11th grade, I did the same book report on the same book, Island of the Blue Dolphins, never actually read the book. Um, I read a bit of the beginning, a bit of the end. It's a very descriptive title. Um, so needless to say, I, I didn't like reading. Somehow, though, I got into college, and one of my very first classes was a philosophy class, and they assigned more reading than I think I'd literally done in the sum total of my life uh, to that point. So the very first day, the, the professor wrote up on the board something basically uh, to this effect. Um, he said this, uh, if you can put it up on the screen. He said, first, God is all-loving and all-powerful. All right, I could get up with that. Second, the world is filled with evil. Um, I was in a philosophy class, so obviously I believe that. Um, third, an all-loving and all-powerful God would not allow evil to exist. Hmm. And fourth, therefore, God is either not loving or not, is either not all-loving or not all-powerful. We were then tasked with reading different philosophers' takes on this seeming paradox. Some argued that, that he is all-powerful, but he's like a the proverbial clockmaker, that he wound up the world and set it off into motion and then just sat back on a big rocking chair and just watched to see what would happen. Others argued that he did, uh, that he did care, that he did love, but he was either unable or unwilling to step into the world and stop evil. Now, a paradox is defined as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. Wikipedia, which is the source of all knowledge uh, and truth, source on that Wikipedia, um, it defines a paradox as an argument that produces an inconsistency, typically within logic or common sense. Now, most of us have a problem with paradoxes. We're not entirely comfortable when someone says that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and that 2 plus 2 equals 7. Um, now, when people share their opinions, that's one thing, okay? So, for example, I'm fine if somebody says that it's fun to go jogging because I've been jogging and I know that's not true. Um, <laughs> speaking of which, have you ever actually seen a happy jogger? I, I swear that every jogger I see looks like they're about eight miles out from Shawshank and they're like, I am not going back. I am not going back. I, uh, in fact, I did a, a half marathon once. At, at mile two, I thought... You know, maybe one day I'll run a marathon. At mile 11, I didn't even want to run my mouth ever again. I was like, <laughs> done. Um, now, typically when we face a paradox involving facts, it nags at us. And we try to discover more until we can clear up this paradox. But um, as Americans, there tends to be one area where we seem to be completely fine with paradoxes. And that's in our perception of God in general and, and Jesus in particular. Imagine that you go into a room and there's four people and the first person says, hey, you know, Jesus, he was a good teacher, but he not only wasn't God, he never actually claimed to be God. 
Another person says, no, 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 Jesus didn't actually exist. He was just uh, an amalgamation of different stories. He was a fictional character. Um, a third person says, no, 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 he, he did exist. He did live, but he didn't actually die on the cross. He actually survived, and through some really good self-administered uh, first aid, he made it down, and then he retired to a small town in Italy where he got married, had 2.5 kids, and left some really cool clues about his existence. And then the fourth person says, no, 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 not only did he live and he died, but he lived again, and he is the visible image of the invisible God. Now, um, it's become socially acceptable and probably even the preferred thing to let each person believe what they want to believe and to define Jesus as they see fit. The, the problem is that these are not merely opinions. These are fact statements and the kinds that can't get along in the sandbox of life. Uh, these statements ultimately must simply ignore each other, which is so often what happens, or they tend to get riled up with each other and fuss with each other. Too often, the reality is that we mix up the fact that people can believe whatever they want with the fact that just because we believe something, it doesn't mean that it's true, especially when it comes to facts. Um, we also tend to think that if it relates to a person's worldview, that people uh, can define their own reality. You know, two plus two equals seven to me. Um, and then when a person says Jesus was not and is not God, they're not actually expressing an opinion. They're actually expressing a fact, which is either true or is not true. And that means that if another person says that Jesus is God, that the two of them can't both be right. Now, clearly, the paradox that was laid out those many years ago in my philosophy class is not new. Um, for centuries, people have tried to wrap their head around the character of a self-professed loving God in the midst of all that they see around them. But a loving God allowing evil to exist is far from the only paradox that we find in Scripture. Um, works versus faith, grace versus truth, law versus freedom, justice versus mercy are just a few examples. And if we're not careful, we can end up like Ulysses, except for him, we have, for us, we have sirens on each side of the shore calling to us. And if we're not careful, we can tend towards one side and to the rocky shores of that side and away from the truth of the other. But maybe the problem isn't with God or even with these seeming paradoxes. Maybe the problem is that we are two-dimensional beings trying to relate to a three-dimensional God. We are black and white, and he is technicolor. See, we can wrap our heads around justice. We can even wrap our heads around mercy. But justice and mercy hanging out and holding hands in some kind of hippie love-in, you know, that's a lot harder to try and understand. Now, I think the ultimate example of the paradoxes of God is found at the cross. Because in the cross, we find probably the two greatest truths in the world. The first is this, that God is more holy and we are more broken 
than we could ever dare imagine. If he weren't, a sacrifice as great as his son wouldn't, it is one and only son would not have been necessary. Well, we may not like it, but the truth is that the cross is every bit as much about God's wrath as it is God's love. Now, the second, though, is that we are more loved and cherished than we could dare hope. You see, to be holy, it means to be pure. It means to be sacred. It means to be set apart. Holiness is everything that we are not. It's exclusive. It's unapproachable. Holiness, by its very nature, condemns everything that isn't holy. Love, on the other hand, it's, it's accepting. It reaches out. It doesn't judge. Love comes to us where we are. It lifts us up, and it envelops us in the midst of our circumstances. Love doesn't expect you to clean yourself up. Love gets down in the muck and mire with you and lifts you up. So how can unapproachable holiness and unbounded love possibly coexist? Talk about the ultimate odd couple, right? But maybe the problem isn't with the height and the width of our understanding of these two forces. Maybe the problem is our understanding of the depth. See, height and width are all about perspective, but depth is about substance, and it requires a journey. It's not about looking at one side of a box. It's about trying to walk around it as well. In fact, it's interesting, in Ephesians, Paul describes love in three-dimensional terms. This is what he says. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now, did you catch it in there? There's actually a paradox in there. He says that he prays that we would know a love that surpasses knowledge. We need to learn something that we can't learn. So when you're talking about an infinite God, you're also talking about an infinite journey. And that's actually okay. In fact, the closest we'll ever get to this side of eternity is an imperfect picture. So now... A logical, a very reasonable response to this would be to say, why, why would I begin a lifelong journey that has no end to try and understand a love that surpasses knowledge? That's a fair question, but it should not dissuade you from attempting it. The key to remember is that the search for truth is not about a thing, but it's about a person if you recall, as Pilate stood in judgment of Jesus, and that's something that, like it or not, we all will do the exact same thing. We will all have to judge Jesus. He asked almost the exact right question. Well, he was bannering back and forth with a tired, broken, battered Jesus. Pilate asked Jesus whether he was the king of the Jews. Jesus responded by saying, you are right in saying that I'm a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. For this, I came into the earth to testify 
to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. Now, the words that, that Pilate responded with still echo to this day. He said, what is truth? Now, I said that he asked almost the exact right question because what if instead of asking what is truth, he had said who is truth? If we begin to, if we begin to think of truth relationally, not um, as a living person instead of an inanimate object, something interesting happens. We begin to see truth relationally instead of objectively, not in the sense that truth is different from each, for each of us, but rather in the sense of the depth of our knowledge of that truth. When it's seen relationally, we can begin to see it more as a journey and less as a destination. And I actually think that's exactly what Jesus intended um, when he talked about us relating to him. He referred to himself as the way the truth, and the life. Notice he didn't say, I know the truth. He said, I am the truth. Through Christ, truth isn't merely a thing to know, but it's really more of a person to relate to and to experience. And as you start to get to know God, and I think the best way to get to know God is to get to know Jesus, you begin to realize that these seeming paradoxes of God aren't as troubling as they may seem because they describe a God who is deep in character, rich in love, and full of vibrancy and color. Holiness and love aren't bound up by each other when they reside in a boundless God. Justice and mercy don't actually limit God they describe him. Grace and truth aren't either ors. They're how Jesus lived and died and lived again. So this morning, I want to look at three seeming paradoxes in Scripture. Is it paradoxes, paradoxin? Is it like oxen, paradoxin? Um, and how we can embrace them to get to better know an unknowable love. So here's the first paradox. The expectation for us as believers is impossible perfection. Sounds easy enough. Um, at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus taught some incredible things. He started with the uh, Beatitudes. Um, I got to, uh, any of you who like John Chris, I actually got to go see him last night. Um, great comedian. He's always looking for those pithy quotes from, from sermons. So, I thought my Instagram-worthy quote from the sermon would be, don't have attitudes, be attitudes. Um, anyway, uh, so Jesus goes through and he's talking through the Beatitudes and, he, and he's teaching and sharing how to live life. Uh, and he ends with this. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven, your heavenly Father is perfect. And John 1334, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Okay, now I'll be frank. Love sounds a little more doable than perfection, okay? So, so what is love? Um, it, uh, 
I was about to do a riff on what is love. Uh, okay, it, Paul describes it like this. He says, it always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So what I want to do is I want to try this as an exercise. I want to try for us to all be perfect, okay? Um, probably best if we all close our eyes. That's the most charismatic thing I'll make you do today. Uh, but go ahead. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to think about being perfect. I want you to think about fully trusting, fully hoping. Okay, ready? Go. And I'm out. Um, anybody still going? Anybody still perfect? Anybody? Okay, there's pride. You're out. Um, I, I honestly, I literally think it would be easier. I could, I could hold my breath longer than I could be perfect. Um, so, so what do you do when you're faced with the impossible? I think that there's, there's three options. The first is that you dumb down the impossible to the difficult. How many people, you know, do this? They say, you know, oh, it was impossible for me to forgive this person or impossible for me to get my finances put together. It's impossible for me uh, to accomplish this. But I buckled down and I was able to accomplish it. I was able to do the impossible. It wasn't impossible. It was difficult, okay? Impossible. M is from the Greek. It means uh-uh, okay? Not possible. Um, we, and, but that's a common thing we do. The second um, is that we give up. Uh, and unfortunately, I think this is what happens to too many Christians today. We fall, we see our brokenness, we fall in love with Jesus, but ultimately we realize that we can't shake ourselves, and we get tired of getting knocked down or falling down ourselves, and so we give up. Uh, we give up on this. So is there a third option? I think there is, and it's to partner with God. In Matthew 19, uh, it tells a story of a young man who comes up to Jesus, and uh, Jesus, um, and he asks, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus responds, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. Um, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So which the guy says, okay, well, which ones? Can you narrow it down for me? So, so Jesus said, okay, you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. Now, here's a little hint. If you get the answer you want from God, run, okay? Cover your ears, you know, don't ask a follow-up. But this guy, he made the mistake of asking a follow-up question. He said, what do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, remember, that's the expectation. Go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. Well, the guy heard this. He walked away in disappointment because he was very wealthy. He didn't want to walk away from his wealth. Um, so Jesus uh, turns to his disciples and he says, I tell you the truth, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know anything about sewing, but I think that sounds pretty impossible. Um, so his disciples said this. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they asked, who then can be saved? 
obvious question, answer. You know, you said something is impossible. And then Jesus says what I think are some of the sweetest words in all of Scripture. He says this, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In, in Greek mythology, there's a story of a man named Sisyphus who attempts to cheat death, uh, and his punishment is uh, an unending task of trying to roll a giant boulder from the bottom of a hill to the top of the hill um, each day, only to see it roll back down to the bottom uh, of the hill and have to do it all over again. His punishment is a lifetime of useless effort and unending frustration. When we define the value of our journey based on the last step, based on how things uh, result, too often we see a life of defeat and pain and toil and futility. But there's another way of looking at this story. What if instead of judging him by his last step, we judged him by his first step? What, What if the curse of Sisyphus isn't toiling away at an impossible task? What if the actual curse is believing that something is impossible and not actually attempting it to begin with? Maybe if we do that, then defeat becomes defiance, pain becomes purpose, toil becomes triumph, futility becomes freedom. The call of Christ is the call to the impossible. But don't worry about the last step or how you see it turning out. Take the first step. Take on the impossible, but take it on with God. Now, the second paradox is this, is that salvation comes from belief and action. Now, this is the point where I would be worried about the grace-only trap door dropping out from under me for daring to say in a church that you're saved by something other than faith. But I'm not worried. you know why? Because the grace-only trapdoor doesn't work. Get it? It doesn't work? Okay. Um, I thought it was funny. Okay, so let let me be clear. Faith saves us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In John 6, someone came up to Jesus and they said, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. Christianity is unique among all world religions and that it tells us that we don't find truth within ourselves and that there's nothing that we can do to justify ourselves. We are made in God's image, but we are uncorrectably broken. We are like a patient who needs a blood transfusion to live. There is nothing that we can do on ourselves to save ourselves. That said, I don't think Jesus came to save us from something I think he came to save us to something. And I think one of the problems today is not that we sell free grace, but that it's we sell free following. Christianity is all about what we believe, and it's also all about what we do. John, 1 John 5.3 says, in fact, this is love for God, to keep 
his commandments. 1 John 22 says, and he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love his brother and sister. James, uh, brother of Jesus, in, in Hebrews, he said this. He said, let us hold unswervingly action to the hope that we profess, faith. For he who promised is faithful, faith. And let us consider how, may we, how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, action. Not giving up meeting together, action, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, action. And all the more as you see the day approaching, faith. Our actions or our inactions, they don't save us, but they do inform us on what we actually believe. In fact, I I think one of the problems in calling ourselves Christians is that we then equate our faith with what we believe, or at least what we say we believe. The, The truth is that the term Christian didn't actually come from Jesus or come from any of the disciples. It came from outsiders who tried to put a label on this new religious movement. From a biblical perspective, it's much more accurate to refer to us as followers, um, which would then be about what we do. Jesus consistently told people, follow me. In fact, in Mark 1.17, he said this. He said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Note the three actions. Come, follow me. It is a call to action. And I will make you. It's Jesus' response to your action. He acts. Fishers of men. This is the result of God and man acting together. There's change in the world. It's action, action, action. It's dynamic and it's relational. Do you know who saw the miracles of Jesus on earth? It was the people who were following him around. When we don't give, when we don't serve, and when we don't love, how can we say that we, lo- that we believe in the person who said to give, to serve, and to love? In fact, I actually think we can be in a worse position by just reading God's word or going to church and thinking that we're Christians because we think then we have it together, but we're just deceived. James 1.22, he said this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Our actions don't save us. Our belief saves us. But our actions do inform us about what we actually believe. Here's the key takeaway. Grace and work aren't enemies. They are dance partners. And they are meant to dance. All right, third paradox. We are to live lives of confident humility. Okay, I I said I wasn't going to make you do anything else, but I lied. I'm not perfect. Um, How many people here are confidently humble? Raise a a hands. No one? You're all humble? You know, it's not not an easy thing to do, right? You can't shoot your hand up. There's no humility in that. You can't not raise your hand. There's no confidence. You kind of got to do this. Yeah, that's me, right? So um, here's the truth. The Bible calls us to confidence. In Ephesians 3.12, it says this. In him and through him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. But the reality is the Bible also calls us to humility. Uh, in Matthew 5, 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Proverbs 22, 4 says, Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Second Samuel says, You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty. I love that word. Your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Okay, so are we supposed to be confident or are we supposed to be humble? The answer is yes. We are to be confident in Jesus and who he is, and we are to be humble in ourselves and who we are. So how do we get to confident humility? I think the answer is truth. How do we get to truth? We get to truth by embracing our sin. Now, for some of you, that may be the first thing you ever wrote down in, the, in church, right? Embrace our sin. Let me explain uh, what I mean. I'll give you an example. Uh, in Luke 5, uh, Peter, is, he's out fishing. He's been fishing all night with no luck at all. Jesus comes along in the morning uh, and says to try again. Uh, Peter says, look, we've been working all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, faith, I will let down the nets. Action. Peter proceeds to catch so many fish that his nets start to break. In that moment, he experienced Jesus, the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of who he is. His response was to fall at Jesus' feet and say, go away from me, I am a sinful man. Jesus stopped, he looked at Peter, and he said, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So if you want to experience Jesus, you start with truth. Truth of who he is and truth of who you are. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said this, if you hold to my teachings, action, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth, belief, and the truth will set you free. Now, if we have humility, but we don't have confidence, we're afraid to approach God or to be honest with him. It is grace without truth, or it is truth without grace. But if we're confident and have no humility, we see no need to approach God or even to be honest with him. It is grace without truth. Okay, so, so what do these all look like in action um, how do we take on the impossible? How do we show both belief and action? How do we live lives of confident humility? Sounds easy enough, right? The truth, though, is that when you start to look for these elements in Scripture, you find them throughout. This is the formula, the secret sauce. This is the 11 herbs and spices of how I think God intended to interact with his creation. So I, I want to just give you one of many examples of this found in Scripture. In Mark uh, 5, uh, 25, uh, it says this. Um, a woman who was uh, there had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of... Um, getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, 
She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Um, You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, as you look at that, I want you to notice a couple of things. First, what she wanted was impossible. She had spent 12 years suffering and using every penny that she had to find a cure, and she was worse off. She was out of options. Second, she believed and she acted. Now, it's really important to note here that there were a lot of people engaged in the action of touching Jesus. The crowd was clamoring around him and bumping into him. She was not healed because she touched Jesus. She was not healed because she did something. Lots of people were doing something. She was healed because she reached out in faith. Her faith caused her to find Jesus and take the act of reaching out. Do you know what she did? She danced with Jesus. Third, she did it with confident humility. She believed that touching even the cloak that he was wearing could heal her. She was absolutely confident in Jesus. She also came in humility, falling at his feet and telling Jesus the whole truth. She was humble in herself. In some, do you know what she did? She dared to be loved. She had an audacity that can only be born from hope. She thought maybe, just maybe, this man not only has the power to save me, but he has the heart to save me as well. I'll never forget on my spiritual journey, there's a, there are a couple of markers along the way. One is when I was a, a teenager, uh, or I was actually in, in elementary school, and I was at vacation Bible school, and it was the day, I'll never forget the day that I realized that I needed Jesus, that there was something wrong that I thought he could fix it. That was the day I loved God with all my mind, okay? Later on, when I was in college, I, was, I realized the gratitude that I felt for what he had done for me, and I realized that I loved Jesus for what he had done. I loved God that day with my heart. But it was a, wasn't until a little bit later than that, and I'll, I'll never forget the day. It was actually not a great day overall, but I will never forget it. And I am not, I'm not a crier. I don't cry. Uh, old yeller, sure, I'm not a robot. Um, where the red fern grows, can't even talk about that movie. But that day, 
I wept like a baby because I realized not just that I needed God, not just that I loved God, but that God actually loved me. And one of the things we believe here at K2 is that you cannot give something that you don't receive. She dared to be loved that day, and she changed the world, and we talk about her 2,000 years later. I want to um, invite the band up uh, to, to close us out. But as we close, I want to stop and ask you guys uh, a few questions. The, so where are you today? What impossible thing are you not attempting? Here's my challenge. Take on the impossible, but take it on with God. Second, do you believe? And if you do believe, are you acting? Are you moving? Are you dancing? Get up and follow Jesus. Third, are you confidently humble? If not, where do you need confidence? Where do you need humility? Confident humility is found at the cross. And finally, are you loved? Not just do you know that you are loved in your mind, not just that you feel love in your heart. Do you know in the depths of your soul that you are loved? If not, I dare you to reach out with your soul and be loved. Mm-hmm.